right? I'd like to op- you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. We will read our text, and then we'll pray and continue our time of worship. Revelation chapter 3, our text this morning will be verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in faith, believing that when your word is read, when your word is preached, it is you who speaks to us. We thank you for the precious gift of Scripture, the timeless truths that are given to us to infuse us with faith and with fear and with joy and with hope. Lord, we thank you for the law of the Lord, which is perfect and revives our souls. So we ask, God, that you would speak to us this morning and that you do your work in your way so that you get all the glory. Amen. I want to ask you as we begin this morning, what comes into your mind when you hear the word revival? Revival, what, is that, what does that trigger in your thoughts? Does it, does it make you think of positive things? For some of you, maybe it does. Perhaps it, it speaks of experiences you've had where God did a significant work in your life. Perhaps some of you came to faith in Christ at a revival meeting. Perhaps for some of you, revival is something that you have eagerly studied in church history You've looked at the the first and second great awakenings in the United States and other revivals throughout history, and you've prayed with eagerness and longing that God would do it again, that he would do it here. For some of you, perhaps, revival, that word actually makes you a little bit nervous. You are a little bit suspicious when you hear that term because it brings to your mind high-pressure tactics. It brings to your mind some sort of maybe emotional frenzy where where if you play the same song long enough and loud enough and get people hyped up, there will be this expression of of emotional and physical responsiveness to to God. For some of you, maybe it brings to mind an event at a church. Maybe growing up, your church would do several nights in a row of revival meetings where some traveling speaker would come in and sort of infuse the normal rhythms of church each week with something different to sort of stir things up. Maybe some of you think of the, you know, attempts at, at... leading a new movement where these traveling speakers will fill up entire stadiums, right, and try to get as many people there as possible so that they can hear the simple gospel presentation. 
though the word revival may have a lot of baggage, and while there are different views of what revival is and how revival happens, this word revival does speak to an important and a necessary truth. Our English word revival comes from the word revive, this verb, which means, according to the dictionary, to return to consciousness or life, to become active or flourishing again. That's very simply what our word revival means. To return to consciousness or life, to to make something alive again, so that it is active again, so that it is flourishing and thriving again. And simply put, that is what a dead church needs. That's what a dead church needs. A dead church doesn't need an emotional experience. A dead church doesn't need a special event to be scheduled. Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. A dead church doesn't need hyped up or frenzied activity, an emotional experience that is only going to wear off as quick as it came on. A dead church needs the work of the Spirit of God to infuse real, genuine, authentic life so that that church will begin to flourish spiritually, to be active spiritually once again. In the letter to Sardis, we see Jesus calling a dead church to awake, to be revived, to be made strong again, and to experience an essential spiritual change. We've been looking at these letters to the different churches in the book of Revelation, and each one of them is different. Each one has different strengths and weaknesses, and each one has different backgrounds. And for us, knowing the history, knowing the culture, knowing the geography even, of these cities helps us understand these letters. And Sardis, this city, is no different. Sardis had a glorious past. They had quite the heritage as a city. But Sardis was somewhat of a cautionary tale. In ancient times, Sardis was a nearly impenetrable military fortress. Sardis was established thousands of years before Jesus was even born. I mean, we're looking at 1700, 1800 B.C. And the city had this impenetrable military fortress that was built at the top of this hill and this hill there was only one way up there was this very steep very uh, difficult to access trail that went up to the acropolis at the top here and on the other three sides it was like a 1500 foot sheer cliff so if you wanted to find a spot to defend this was a good place to be Uh, In fact, it became a saying in the ancient world that to accomplish something impossible was like capturing Sardis. So we might say, well, when pigs fly, because we know that's impossible, right? Pigs don't have wings. Pigs are fat. They can't fly. They're made for bacon, not flying. So we would say, oh, yeah, kids, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll buy you that, you know, when pigs fly or something like that, meaning it'll never happen. Well, Sardis was like that. It was a proverb in the day that capturing Sardis, well, you may as well go capture Sardis. Or man, what he accomplished was like capturing Sardis. It was because it was so impossible. But it actually wasn't quite impossible. On two occasions in their history, Sardis was actually overthrown. The first time uh, happened when King Cyrus and his Persian army in 546 BC captured the city. The Greek historian Herodotus records how one of Cyrus's soldiers was carefully examining the city. He was watching it. He was observing. He was looking for weakness, and he noticed that one of the soldiers in Sardis climbed down the backside through this hidden path because he wanted to get a helmet that had rolled off the wall. 
I mean, think about that. He wasn't paying attention. His helmet rolls off. This guy says, no big deal. I'll sneak down and get it. But one of these um, Persian soldiers saw this happen. And later, he snuck back up that same path, and he led a large number of soldiers into the citadel, and Sardis was overthrown. You say, well, you know, climbing up was one thing. Why didn't they see them? Well, the soldiers at Sardis felt that their fortress was so bulletproof, they didn't even need to guard the backside. They had all their forces guarding and watching the front. And so the city fell. It happened again over 200 years later when Antiochus III and his Greek army besieged the city in 214 B.C. Uh, Again, a soldier was watching, observing the city, and he noticed that they never guarded a certain portion of the wall because they thought it was impossible for anyone to get in that way. So this soldier led a small group of men in at that exact point, and they opened the gates from the inside. And they let all the other soldiers, they let their army in. And again, Sardis fell to the invaders. Sardis was basically the ancient equivalent to the story of the Titanic in our own era. Remember the Titanic? They said it couldn't be sunk. And they were so confident in the Titanic's safety and security, they didn't even bother to have enough lifeboats on board. By the time John is writing this letter in the first century, Sardis has been conquered twice, and it's also been through a disastrous earthquake in 17 AD. It was rebuilt later with Roman funding from Rome, but it never regained its former glory in fact, they, they really wanted, they were so thankful to Rome for rebuilding them and funding their restoration project, they wanted to have a temple to the emperor there, but that privilege was denied. Their glory was in the past, and their claim to fame lie, lay in what they once were, not what they continued to be. Now, why do I share all this history about Sardis? Well, this history is important because it corresponds in many ways to the failure of the church in Sardis. The church, the believers there, they thought everything was fine. They were not watchful, they were not on guard, and they failed to realize the great spiritual danger that they are in. Let's look at how Jesus assesses and diagnoses the problem. The problem, according to the end of verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus, the one who inspects the church, the one who assesses the church, he checks their pulse. Jesus checks their breathing. And he says, there is very little there. This is ironic because another sort of geographic detail about Sardis was they had a large necropolis right outside the gates of the city. It was a massive graveyard. And this massive graveyard boasted these large burial mounds for many of their ancient kings, these ancient kings that had ruled an empire that was headquartered in Sardis. And these burial mounds rivaled the size of the pyramids. I mean, they were that significant. And Jesus says, sadly, your church has more in common with the cemetery outside the gate than you have with a real, living, breathing church. He says, you have a reputation, or literally, you have a name for yourself, you've made a name for yourself of being alive, but here's the reality, you are dead. You are dead. So he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found that your works are complete in the sight of my God. He says, your works are incomplete. This finding, when he says, I have not found your works, again, this communicates that Jesus has thoroughly inspected the church. 
This is the, the verdict or the result of his examination. And in the verdict of God's searching judgment, their works are incomplete. This refers to not just the, the quantity of their works, because they were a busy church. It refers to the quality of their works. In the eyes of men, things looked great. You have a reputation among people on a horizontal level. Everybody around you, all these other churches on the circuit, they think you're doing well. You have a reputation for being alive. But in the eyes of God, in the sight of my God, verse 2 says, they were deficient. Scripture tells us that man looks on the outward appearance. But what does God look on? He looks on the heart, doesn't he? God sees beyond the surface. He sees past the veneer. He can see through all the smoke and the noise and the activity. And he sees the true nature, the true character of what's going on in an individual's heart and what's going on in church. And there was a lot missing in the church in Sardis. To say that their works are incomplete would have been another fairly ironic statement. Another uh, interesting thing about Sardis was that at one point they'd attempted to build a massive temple to Artemis. You remember that uh, the church at Ephesus had to deal with all of this hostility that came from the worshipers of Artemis. Remember there was that massive riot where Paul was almost torn in pieces and everyone was chanting, great is Artemis or, or Diana as, as this God was called sometimes of the Ephesians. They had this incredible temple there. Well, Sardis wanted a grand temple to Artemis, and they started building one that would have been just as big as the one at Ephesus, but that building project was never finished. That construction project was never completed, so there was a work begun there, and Jesus says, just like that half-finished temple that you guys walk past every day on your way to work, that's what your works are like. This church was a sad example of what could have been. There was a tragic failure at Sardis for the church to become what they were meant to be. Although they have the reputation for being alive, they're actually just like the cemetery. They're dead. And though other people may see their good works and be impressed, Jesus finds their works to be incomplete, just like the temple to Artemis. We might wonder, so why is this church dead? Or, or why are they dying? What was the exact issue there? And it's kind of hard to say because this passage doesn't really tell us. It doesn't tell us what led to this condition. We don't find any mention here of persecution, unlike the other churches. We don't find any mention of false doctrine. We don't find any mention of immorality. It just says that they are dead and their works are incomplete. And, and rather than confuse us, that actually should make this passage very helpful because it really makes this warning and this diagnosis applicable to any number of churches at any point in time who might become spiritually cold, spiritually dead for any number of reasons. Churches can die because of poor leadership. You have unhealthy leaders, you will have an unhealthy church. Churches can die when they tolerate sin. That sin is like a cancer that can corrupt and destroy the life of the church from the inside out. Churches can die because of false teaching, because false teachers lead us away from the life-giving truth of Jesus. Churches can die because sometimes they just have many in their midst who are not truly saved. Sometimes a church is dead because all the people in that church are spiritually dead. 
They're not truly converted. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. So no wonder there's no genuine worship for God. No wonder there's no genuine passion for Christ. No wonder there's no victory over sin and no spiritual power because they're lost. Sometimes churches die because they simply get distracted and they do not abide in Christ who is, according to John 15, the vine and the source of our life. So churches can die for any number of reasons. I typically don't read extensive quotes to you guys, but um, Pastor John MacArthur had this portion in his commentary that struck me, and I wanted to read it for you. He says, what are the signs of a church that is dying? He says, a church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past laurels. When it is more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality. When it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through the preaching of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. When it is more concerned with material than spiritual things. When it is more concerned with what men think than what God said. When it is more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the word of God. Or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself. No matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its buildings, no matter what its status in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. I can't say it better than that, so I just had to read it for you guys. But there's a lot of reasons that a church may die. No matter what the reason that Sardis ended up where they did, what is clear is that they desperately needed revival. They needed revival. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this letter that they received. And so my aim today, and what I hope that you will take away this morning, is not just some interesting historical background, although I know that's kind of fun. My aim is rather to spotlight the eternal truths that God intends for his church to draw from this text in every age. This letter, while to Sardis, is for us. And what I want to do today is draw out three principles from this text that help us understand the nature of true revival. What is the nature of true revival? That's what I hope to show you. Number one, what we discover in verse one is that revival depends on the power of Christ. Revival depends on the power of Christ. Verse one, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The one who is speaking to them in this letter is none other than the resurrected Jesus Christ who has, number one, the seven spirits of God and who has, number two, the seven stars. Once again, the imagery here is being pulled from chapter one, from the introductory comments of this letter and from the vision that John saw. The seven stars, according to chapter one, verse 20, represent the angels or the messengers of the churches. Um, Scholars are, are split on whether this refers to spiritual heavenly beings that are sort of the guardian angels or, or the watchmen over the church, or whether it refers to the pastors, the human leaders who, who are God's spokesmen in the church. I lean towards the, the view that these are pastors, that they are leaders in the church. But in either case, what this shows us when it says that Jesus has the seven stars, it means that he is sovereign over the church. It is his church. The church answers to him, and he is fully aware of what is going on in the church. When it says he has the seven stars, that he's got it under control, 
It means he is very unlike the Sardians who were unable to hold their city in the face of opposition. When it says he has the seven spirits of God, we touched on this briefly in chapter 1, this is likely a reference to the vision that the prophet Zechariah had. Seven here is symbolic of fullness or completeness, and this is all an an image of this lampstand in the heavenly throne room that represents the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah 4, verse 2, it says, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Verse 4, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This lampstand with seven burning lamps on it is symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when it says that Jesus has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, it means he is sovereign over the church and that he possesses the spiritual resources that they need. Jesus is the one who sends and deploys the Holy Spirit to the church. What the church at Sardis needs is nothing short of a work of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is that Jesus is able to provide what it is that he requires. Jesus requires from them spiritual change. If you've ever tried to change yourself, if you've ever tried to change someone else, you know how impossible that is. It actually takes a divine work of God. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit for a person's heart to change. And Jesus has all of that power. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. The Messiah who was to come would have the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. I'm the one who speaks to you, and I have all the power that you need, the power to produce spiritual change. It's the Holy Spirit who is able to make us alive when we are dead. It's the Holy Spirit who's able to bring conviction of sin and awaken us to our condition when we're asleep at the wheel. It's the Holy Spirit who is able to strengthen us to believe and obey the word of Christ and produce real change. It's not by might nor by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, revival depends on the power of Christ, the power of his spirit that he indwells in us. Revival is not something we can produce through our own efforts. Revival is not something we can manufacture. It's not something that's even possible in and of ourselves. So if Sardis is going to reverse course, if Sardis is going to become a living church whose works are actually complete in the sight of God, then they need a power that is outside of themselves. They need a power that comes from Christ. Some people think that revival is something that leads to an outpouring of the Spirit of God. If we just do enough, if we pray enough, if we repent enough, if we sing long enough and loud enough, if we cry hard enough, 
then we're guaranteed that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on us and we'll have this, this experience of God's presence drawing near. But that's actually backwards. That's actually backwards. True revival is not something that leads to an outpouring of God's Spirit. No. True revival is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, that he's already present, that he is doing his work in us, that he's doing what only he can do, that he's bringing conviction of sin, awakening the lost to their need, and producing repentance and obedience and faith in the hearts of God's people. Revival doesn't lead to an outpouring of God's Spirit. Revival shows that that's what is happening. There is no revival apart from the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, whom He sends to quicken and empower and indwell His people. So first of all, revival depends on the power of Christ. But secondly, revival requires a response to the Word of Christ. It requires a response to the word of Christ. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. The power for revival resides in Christ. Yes, it's his spirit. But how is it that we come to experience that power? It is through obedience. A church must respond in faith and in obedience to the word of Christ. I want to just look at the five commands that are given here in rapid succession. These commands that describe the needed response in the church. First, he says, wake up. Wake up. Literally, prove yourselves watchful. Become vigilant. Again, Sardis was famous for these two spectacular military failures in her past. Even though they had the best possible situation defensively in their fortress, they didn't bother watching the back door. They were not on guard. They were not watchful. They were not vigilant. And they were tragically unaware of the threat that was literally coming over their walls. Similarly, this church at Sardis was unaware of their spiritual condition. They believed the press. They believed their own headlines, that they had this reputation for being alive, and so they thought they were. They were unconcerned about what was at stake. And Jesus says, you need to be alert to the very real spiritual decline that is taking place. What we are responsible to do is obey this command from Christ. Wake up. Be watchful. Take inventory. Look at what's going on. Don't be blind to the very real threats to spiritual vitality in your heart and in your church. Second, he says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. There were some good evidences from the past of some things that were good in the church. There were some things in the church worth preserving, worth restoring, worth rebuilding, worth developing. There was some good doctrine there. There was some love for Christ. There were some spiritual graces at work in them. There were some people there that were sincere. So just like a campfire that's died out, these people needed to dig in the ashes and uncover those coals and fan them into flame and to strengthen what remains. They had work to do. 
They had work to do. They were to wake up or, and to prove themselves watchful, and then they were to strengthen what remains and is about to die. This indicates that if they don't act now, then the little bit that they have left is bound to go out. It says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Listen, while revival is a work of God, we are not called to be passive um, recipients of that work. We are called to be active in obedience, to seek to strengthen what remains, trusting that as we do, it is the Holy Spirit who will produce revival. Third, he tells them there to remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you've received and heard. What is it that they received? What is it that they heard? It's nothing less than the apostolic message, the truth about Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the gospel. It's a return to the gospel, a remembrance of the gospel, and a renewal in in faith in the gospel and commitment to the gospel and trust in the gospel. That is what will help to fan these flames once again and bring revival to this church. They needed to return to the central truth of Christianity, to rehearse and remember the story that shapes us and gives us our identity, to return to the doctrinal center of our faith. The gospel is the place where all these abstract truths about the love of God and the justice of God and the nature of sin where it becomes very real and practical, where it takes on flesh, where God takes on flesh, and where my sins come into direct contact with the Holy Son of God and are punished on the cross. This is where Christianity becomes personal, where God's grace spells my name out. He says, you need to remember that. You need to remember the explosive reality of what Jesus has done on the cross. The gospel is the kindling for the fire of revival in the church. It's like one of those fire starter logs. Have you ever used those? You unpeel them and you light them up. They burn for a long time and they burn really hot and they catch everything around them on fire. So if you're not a Boy Scout, you can cheat and get one of those fire starter logs, right? The gospel is like that. It's the key to catching everything else on fire because it burns hotter than anything else we could talk about in this church. It burns longer than anything we could do in our own efforts in this church. It's the power of the gospel. A telltale sign of a dead or a dying church is that they are no longer excited about the truth of the gospel. A telltale sign of a dead and dying church is that its people are no longer moved by the truth of the gospel that they are no longer confident in the power and the sufficiency and the centrality of the gospel, that they are no longer humbled by the gospel. Listen, what happens when a church neglects to remember the gospel is that it dies. It's dead. They may have a reputation for being alive, but there is no life apart from this truth. This church had obviously lost sight of what 1 Corinthians 15 says is of first importance. Of what Romans 1 says is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. They've lost sight of the gospel. The good news that God, in his love for sinners, sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. The gospel is the truth that Jesus 
fulfilled the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. That though he was the eternal son of God, he took on flesh and came here to become one of us and represent us. And that this Jesus, although he's the rightful king, although he deserves all glory, he laid down his life like a sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. To shed his blood that the righteous demands of God's justice would be satisfied. He made propitiation. He absorbed the wrath that we deserve by hanging on a Roman cross. And this Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he came out of the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit because it was not possible for death to hold him. And he ascended into heaven where today he sits at the right hand of God. He functions even now as our advocate, our high priest, praying for us. This gospel is the good news that everyone who repents of their sin, everyone who acknowledges their need, everyone who bows their knee and trusts in Jesus Christ is forgiven of their sin, is made alive by the power of the Spirit, is adopted into the family of God, and is promised an eternal inheritance with Christ. That's the gospel. Perhaps some of you need to remember today what you have heard what you have received because you've forgotten it. Maybe I didn't tell you anything new, but when was the last time that message, that story, that truth occupied the place of being front and center in your mind? When was the last time the gospel was the first tool you grabbed out of your toolbox to deal with discouragement, to deal with loneliness, to deal with guilt or shame? to deal with your sins of pride or anger or selfishness or lust. Have you forgotten the gospel? Remember. Remember what you heard and received. There's a fourth command he gives this church. Not only are they to wake up, strengthen what remains, and remember, but they're to keep it. The good graces that remained in the church, the things that were to be strengthened, and and the gospel truth that they're remembering, all of this needs to be hung on to. This verb indicates an ongoing action, literally that they're to keep on keeping it. That that as these things are fanned into flame and remembered, and and this new attitude of watchfulness and awareness, that these things need to be maintained. If all of this only lasts for 15 minutes... It's only a matter of time until the church dies again. They're to keep on keeping it. A sustained response of faith and obedience to Christ is necessary. So he says, keep it. And then finally he says, repent. Repent. Remember then what you've received and heard, verse 3. Keep it and repent. They are to turn away, to decisively turn from their apathy to turn away from their spiritual neglect, to turn away from their sense of complacency and their stagnation, and they're to recognize this as a clear and present danger and make an abrupt change in direction. Say, we've been complacent, we've been forgetful, we've been neglectful, no more. As of today, we're going a new direction. We are turning towards Christ, turning from our sin and our failure. Repentance is the necessary response 
if a church is going to experience revival. You know, it's very easy for us as Christians to criticize the world. We could spend the next hour talking about all the craziness going on in society, all the insanity that's being promoted as truth, and we can mourn and, and rightly grieve all the devastation and destruction it's causing to our culture and to people who are made in the image of God. It's very easy for us to point out their issues. It's also very easy to stand up here and criticize the church at large, to talk about the church in America today and its materialism and its man-centeredness and its weak gospel and its tolerance of false teaching and, and its tolerance of immorality and sin. We could rip all those churches and all those denominations and point our finger for a long time. You know what else is easy? is to point out other people in this church, to be disappointed by their lack of fervency for Christ, to be concerned about the sins that they tolerate in their life, to sort of diagnose and, and, and detail all the ways that other Christians in our church are falling short, and if they would get on track, I bet this church would be a lot stronger. You know, it's hard to do. It's hard to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, this is where I need to repent. This is where I'm wrong. This is where I fall short of what Christ calls me to. This is how I've forgotten the gospel. This is the things I've been neglecting. This is where I've been asleep at the wheel. But that's what Jesus calls us to. This command for repentance is not just for the world, it's not just for the church at large out there. It's not just for the other people sitting in a, a different chair in this room who have issues. This command is for you and it's for me. Repent. Repent. Be broken before Christ today. Be broken over your sin. Be grieved over your failures. Be, be mournful and confess those things to God and renounce them and forsake them and turn from your sin to Christ and receive his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness and watch as he revives you. And as he revives you, that's the spark that leads to revival in the church. Friends, this is what the church must do. If there's going to be revival, there must be repentance. We need to wake up. We need to strengthen what remains. Remember, keep it, and repent. Revival requires a church that is responsive to the word of Christ. By the way, this is why preaching has always been used by God to bring about great times of reformation and revival. It's the preaching of the scriptures that God uses, isn't it? I mean, that's what God uses. He uses his word to awaken sinners. How do we wake up apart from what I like to call the smelling salts of scripture? I mean, you open God's word. Wow, that's a rush. It's this truth that just puts everything into perspective. God uses the preaching of the scripture to awaken sinners. He uses the scriptures to, to unpack the truth that will equip us and motivate us to strengthen what remains. How do we strengthen what remains apart from understanding God's word? It's the scripture where we discover the white hot gospel that burns into our souls the life-changing truth of God's grace in his son Jesus Christ. And it's the preaching of the word that brings conviction and calls us to repentance. Which is why for a dead church that desperately needed revival, this church at Sardis, what did God do? He sent them a letter. 
He sent them a letter. He gave them a book. He gave them scripture. Scripture. He gave them the book of Revelation. What they needed was a stiff dose of Christ's assessment of who they were. They needed Christ's rebuke. They needed Christ's authoritative uh, word. And they needed a reminder of Christ's power and of Christ's promise. Revival requires that the church be responsive to the word of Christ. And what happens if the church is not? We see a warning of judgment in verse 3. It says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Obedience to these commands is not optional. It is essential. And a refusal to respond to Christ's commands leads inevitably, Jesus says, to judgment. He says, I will come like a thief. This is not I don't think a a reference to the rapture. This is a reference to judgment on that church. It says, I will come when you are not ready. Judgment always comes too soon for those who are not prepared for it. And he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And just look at that little phrase. Remember who's talking. This is Jesus. And he says, I will come against you. That ought to sober us. That Jesus would say, I will come against you. There's no one who escapes. No one can withstand his judgment. This is a sober warning for the church that Jesus will not simply passively let them lose steam and die out. He will actively come against them and judge them for their refusal to repent. There's a principle in scripture that the ones who know the most and have heard the most are the most accountable. And so when the church has been given explicit instruction from Jesus Christ and says, no, Jesus says, I will come against you. So the ball's in their court. The question is, will they respond? Will they respond? Revival requires a responsive church. Jesus calls us to wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, keep it, and repent. And again, this is not just for that church. It's for this church. A responsive church is made up of responsive members, responsive people. So if you hear the voice of Jesus today speaking to you through his word, the ball is in your court. Will you say, yes, Lord, and obey him? Will you do what Jesus is calling you to do today? Revival depends on the power of Christ. Revival requires a responsiveness to the word of Christ. And then third, Revival anticipates the approval of Christ. Revival anticipates the approval of Christ. Look in verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have to ask, what is the significance here of these white robes? We see that there are some who are faithful, verse 4. There's this righteous remnant, uh, thankfully, by God's grace. There's some who have not compromised, and they have walked in holiness. He says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he says, to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres in his faith, the one who endures to the end, that he will be clothed thus in white 
garment. So what does this mean? Well, I think verse 4 is speaking here of very simply practical holiness. There are some in the church who are faithful. And though the church as a whole is dead, there's a few. There's a few who remain. And Jesus approves of them. Jesus accepts them. He has no rebuke for them. Despite the overall dead nature of the church, there's still this righteous remnant. And Jesus approves of them. So what is this promise for in verse 5? That the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Uh, there's kind of two ways we can understand this. Sometimes in Scripture we read of being clothed by Christ in white garments. And it's sort of in uh, a metaphor for justification for Jesus giving us his righteousness so that we can be declared right in the sight of God. But we know that that's something that happens not at the end after we overcome. That's something that happens at the point of our salvation. That's an immediate action where Christ imputes his righteousness to us and he takes all of our sin upon himself. There's a trade, this beautiful exchange that takes place when we're saved. So speaking about being clothed in white as a future reality steers us away from thinking about this as justification. If this were referring to Christ's imputed righteousness, this would be teaching a salvation by works, that if we persevere and we believe and we make it to the end, then as a reward we get Christ's righteousness, and that's not the gospel. So while in other places in Scripture these robes refer to Christ's imputed righteousness, I don't think that's what's going on here. Rather, I think it's helpful here to understand this um, in the historical context. In those days, when there were festivals or celebrations, great, uh, great uh, celebrations, there were these festal robes that were given to people who were invited. Everybody who came to the party was given this white garment to wear. It was symbolic, and it was for a special occasion. So if we think about it this way, I think we can better understand what these robes are talking about um, wh when we see it as Jesus promising that those who persevere, uh, those who endure, that they have acceptance by God. They're going to be present for this great celebration at the end of time. And that Christ's approval of them and their salvation as God justifies them is going to be matched with this approval as they are welcomed into his presence. I think this makes even more sense when we pair it with the promise that he will never blot their name out of the book of life. Some people, sadly, will read this statement that he will never blot their name out of the book of life. They'll read this promise that's intended to be comforting as a warning, as a threat that's supposed to do the opposite of comforting people. They'll read this and say, well, this means that maybe he will blot some people out of the book of life, but I don't think that's the right way to read it. Again, historically, um, whether you were a member at the local synagogue or whether you were a citizen of a, a Greco-Roman city, they kept these roles of people who belonged, and sometimes people got removed. You could be kicked out of the synagogue. We see that happen to a blind man who was healed by Jesus, and he was cast out of the synagogue. His name was erased from the roles. He couldn't come in any longer. Likewise, you could lose your citizenship. If you commit certain crimes, if you perhaps don't worship the emperor, for example, you could have your name blotted out of the book of the living, the, the census register that, that showed who was a citizen of the city. They would say, you're dead to us now. You no longer belong. What Jesus is saying to these people 
is this, that if you trust in me, you devote yourself to my gospel, you strengthen what remains, that proves that you're really one of mine and everyone who belongs to me, there is no threat of being blotted out of my book. Jesus doesn't have an eraser on his pencil. That's the promise. That's the promise. How encouraging this would have been for Jewish believers who lived in Sardis. Archaeology shows that the largest synagogue that we've ever uncovered was in Sardis. The Jewish community was very strong there and had a special exemption uh, from the Roman Empire that they didn't have to offer the pinch of incense to Caesar. You know what would have been tempting for Christians? To sort of want to belong to the Jewish community. It would have been a get-out-of-jail-free card. If they would have confessed Jesus Christ publicly as Lord, they would have been ostracized by the Jewish community and they now would have felt the weight of Roman oppression. They might have been written out of the roles in the synagogue. Jesus says, don't worry about it because you won't be blotted out of my book. For those who may have been citizens of Sardis, perhaps if they refused to worship the emperor, if they confessed that Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, they might have had their citizenry revoked. Jesus says, that's okay because I will never blot your name out of my book. There's this amazing statement he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus says, I will be for you. I will represent you to the Father. Contrast this with the warning. If they do not repent, Jesus will come against them. But if they confess his name, Jesus will confess theirs. He will be for them. He will be for them. They will be accepted in the realm that really matters. This echoes the truth that Jesus taught in Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone or whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Listen, what matters most is loyalty to Christ, faithfulness to Christ, a holy life in obedience to Christ. And when revival happens, it's because people care more about that. They care more about pleasing Christ. They care more about his acceptance than they care about anything else. And that proves that we really do belong to Jesus. Revival anticipates the approval of Christ and reaches for that above anything else. Believing that no worldly pleasure, no honor from men, no earthly accomplishment compares to the smile of our Savior. So what about you? Let me ask you today. If Jesus were to come, were to come and inspect this church, and if he were to inspect your heart, what would he say? Do you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually spiritually dead? There's always a danger of hypocrisy in the church. Perhaps some of you are just playing church today. It looks great on the outside. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus see? Maybe you have a good reputation among others, but in secret, your life is actually stained by sin. Perhaps you have a reputation for being busy and active and serving in the church, but under closer inspection, you lack the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not genuine fruit, the kind of fruit that will hold up on the day of judgment. 
Listen, if that describes you today, if you are spiritually dead, consider this your wake-up call. Wake up, Jesus says. Be aware of the danger that you are in. Listen, if you will not repent, Scripture says you will face the judgment of Christ and it will come when you are not ready for it. It will come when you least expect it. If you are living a double life, if you are a hypocrite, if you're self-deceived and you think everything's good with God because you've said the right things and jumped through the hoops, but your heart is dead, if that's the case, Jesus says, if you don't wake up, if you don't repent, I will come against you. I will come against you. But here's the good news today. If you will repent, if you will wake up, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, Jesus says that he will never blot your name out of the book of life and you will wear his robes. You'll be invited to the celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And instead of being against you, Jesus will be for you. He will be on your side. He will confess your name to the Father. Listen, if you're not truly born again today, hear the word of Christ and wake up. If you're living a compromised life, and if there's true salvation in your heart, but you're not walking with the Lord, there's no genuine love for Jesus, there's no, no harvest of fruit in your life, this is your call to wake up. What you need today is revival. Decades after this letter was written, there was a man named Melito who served as the bishop of Sardis. He had great influence and in leadership in a ministry in the church. He's known for actually writing the first commentary on several different portions from the book of Revelation. You know what that tells us? It tells us that there was some measure of revival in Sardis. It wasn't too late. They woke up. They remembered. They strengthened what remained. They kept it and they repented of their stagnation and their apathy and their spiritual numbness. And the church was renewed in its devotion to Christ. They heard the warning, and God, through the power of his spirit, revived them. May God produce that kind of revival in our hearts, that we might be a church today that not only has a reputation of being alive, a reputation for growth, a reputation for doing ministry, but I pray that we would be a church that is actually alive in the eyes of God, a church whose works are found to be complete, as we depend on the Holy Spirit and remember the word and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which speaks life. Thank you for your spirit who causes us to live. We thank you for your son who has purchased life for us in his death. Thank you for the regular rhythms of preaching and singing and communion that bring us back to the source of our life. Lord, thank you for the miracle of grace you've done in so many in this room in bringing them to life and making them awake to the gospel and producing by your spirit faith and repentance in them. God, the church can only live by your power and by your grace. And Lord, when we struggle, when we fade in our life and devotion to Christ, when there's a loss of power and fervor and zeal and tenderness and love 
Lord, we need another work of your grace. We know that revival is not something we manufacture, it's something you do. And so we pray that you would strengthen us to obey the commands you've given. Lord, we offer ourselves to you and ask that if there are unredeemed, spiritually dead people in our midst, that today you would quicken them, awaken them to the glory of the gospel and bring them to life. Lord, if there are those in our midst who claim Christ, who have been saved, but they're holding on to bitterness, holding on to anger, holding on to secret sin, unwilling to repent, and the spiritual life has all but drained out of them, I pray that today you would break through those walls and do something that I can't do, do something that this church can't do. Bring them to repentance. Bring a true revival in their heart. Sober them with the warning that you will come against them if they do not repent. Encourage them with the promise that if they do, that they will walk with you in robes of white and they will never be blotted out of your book. God, I pray for a work of grace to bring revival to hearts, to families, and to this church and enable us, Lord, to keep on keeping these things, to never lose sight of your word and your will for us. Amen.